0: national media continues to exaggerate and promote misleading negative headlines designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. Law Matters gives law enforcement a voice to hear their up-to-date concerns so we can keep our families safe. Remember, the only people who want to defund the police and dismantle these agencies are the criminals. Now let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I want to throw this out there law matters is looking for board members and volunteers to help support our mission if you're interested please contact us through the lawmatters.1030.org website okay i hope you have your world maps out so you can follow along our guest today is hal kempfer the ceo of global risk intelligence planning good morning hal
1: morning sherry uh, getting the maps out well it's been a week for maps, as you know, because China put a map out, and it caused nothing but controversy worldwide.
0: uh Oh, so, what'd they do? Yeah,
1: well, they put a map out, and uh, and uh, you, it was all over the news yesterday. Uh, they they put out their new. This is the way we see the world. Of course, uh, uh, one thing they they they've constantly done, which is uh, the the international court has said no, this is a bogus claim, uh, but. Is they have this nine dash line uh, in the water in the South China Sea, basically claiming the South China Sea as Chinese waters, to including cutting into the exclusive economic zones of Vietnam, Malaysia, the Philippines. Of course, they claim everything around Taiwan. But you know, this is one of the things. You know, let's get into the issues that they've had with where the Philippines has an outpost. And they try to resupply it in uh, in the you know in that in the disputed shoals areas, yeah. And uh, the, the Chinese push them back, or the Philippine fishing boats go out there and the Chinese push them back. Well, this is part of that brief, but it got better. You may recall last week they had the big BRICS uh, meeting. That's supposed to be sort of the counterpart, if you will, uh, to Western alliances, it's uh you know it's it's basically it's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and then South Africa. And there's a, a lot of other countries that express interest in joining BRICS. It's kind of a counterpart to the Western model, if you will. Well, uh Modi was there, you know, there's a lot of kumbaya between China and and uh and India there. And then of course this map comes out and China claims a big chunk of India. Mm-hmm. As part of its territory, which was kind of interesting. But, but the most interesting thing was there's an island, fairly sizable island on the Amur River, uh, on the northern border with Russia. And in 2005, Russia and China had signed an agreement saying all of our border disputes are done. We agree with the map the way it is. We're not going to go back and, uh, look at this again. We have no more disputes. Well, on this map, that, that, that big island shows up as part of China and <laughs> Russia and everybody's kind of watching Russia saying, what's Putin going to say about that? And, uh, and, uh, yes, Russia did protest it, but, uh, yeah, yeah. maps are, maps are big news right now because of what China <laughs> just did.
0: <laughs> yeah. And they thought Putin was going to, wasn't going to say something about that.
1: That's... I I'm not quite sure. You know, there's a, there's i I'm, I'm one of the few the proud okay, well okay, that's a Marine Corps thing, but uh but I'm one of the few out there who who's looked at this relationship with Russia and China and I kinda take a long view, which is kinda the way China tends to look at things. They don't see things in years or just decades. They tend to look at things at centuries. Yeah. And if you go back in the nineteenth century Uh, you know, 18th, 19th centuries, uh, Chinese, China's empire was gradually eroded by Western powers. And, and I'm going to put Russia in that grouping of, of, say, European powers back then. A huge chunk of China up in Siberia, well, what we call Siberia, and, uh, and then going into literally Vladivostok, their big Pacific port, that was all Chinese. And uh, the Tsar took that from the Chinese emperor, and uh, there's a treaty, or, uh, basically an imposed treaty of 1859. And, and there have been a few scholars that have come back and said, you know, if Russia is completely bereft militarily coming out of the Ukraine war, they're kind of wondering if China is going to start making larger claims on some of these territories that were taken by the Tsars. That's why when this map showed up, taking that island, it really piqued a lot of interest, which is, where's, where's China going on this? And, of course, they've been so vocal and so strident uh, with getting Taiwan back, you know, bringing Taiwan under their control. And, of course, this, this week, uh, the U.S. pledged that we're doing direct financing of uh, military support to Taiwan, and China came back with a very visceral response saying, that the U.S. has absolutely crossed a red line, that this will be responded to. Nobody quite knows what that means, but uh, but basically China has become very vocal, very forceful this last week, and then they put this map out, uh, which was very confrontational with all the countries in the South China Sea, not to mention India and Russia, even, which is really strange. You know, it's funny, I said this on the on one of the television news things last night, You know, uh, there was this thing where you know Putin and Xi said our friendship knows no bounds. Well, apparently they know bounds, and those are called boundaries. Boundaries. (laughs) (laughs) So, so anyway, there's just a lot going on right now uh, with what China's just done, trying to literally rewrite the map of the world. And 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 I I have to say, this kind of goes back to something I think we talked about before: the Barbie issue. (laughs) Yes. Which is. Yeah, the Barbie movie actually had a map with South China Sea, China's claims in the South China Sea, on the map, which uh, you know some said, "Oh, that was just an oversight." It was not an oversight. The reason why is because they want to be able to market that movie in China, which is a huge audience, and so they basically, not the first time Hollywood's done this, they kowtowed out to Chinese interests on this, and they said, "Okay, we're." Well, We'll, we'll, we'll put that South China Sea claim on the map. Kind of like uh, initially, and that got changed in what showed up in the U.S., but initially in that Tom Cruise, uh, remake of Top Gun, Maverick, mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, they took the, uh, Taiwanese flag off his flight jacket. And that was in the first movie. And they took it off. And that was, uh, specifically to, uh, to avoid offending China. And so they can market that movie in China. So, uh, so it's not the first time Hollywood's done this, but it all goes back to these extraordinary claims. And these claims, these claims are kind of big because, um, this gets into the international rule of law, which is kind of what we're talking about with Ukraine as well. This is, this is the, the rule of law, the law of wars, but also the, uh, United Nations, the, uh, treaty, uh, worldwide called own clause. The United Nations uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, and China's claim completely up upends that claim uh, of borders. And this is what has everybody concerned: is that's how that's how you end up in a potentially going into a third world war. Right. Is if you start if you start reorganizing the map, if you allow countries to make these you know historic claims. And you go around the world, everybody's got a historic claim on other people's territories. I don't know. I'd have to look pretty hard to find a place that doesn't. But just when you go around the world, and, you, and, and at some point in history for 200 years, some kingdom claimed territory in some other kingdom. And uh, so you could end up in endless wars if you try to go back and correct all these things. So, I'm,
0: I'm surprised you know. Russia hasn't said anything yet. Or do they think well, they can did. just put oh, that? They did.
1: No, they did. They came back and said, "No, that's no." We 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 vigorously protest that map showing that island in uh in China.
0: Oh, okay. And uh, and,
1: uh, and all of this is kind of interesting because at the end of the day, China's not going to change its map. <laughs> they're just they're just going to blow this whole thing off and say, "Yeah, okay, whatever." You know, they're going to keep that stuff on there. The interesting thing, though, is um, India and I just did a podcast on this not too long ago where we talked about India and India has historically been quote, not aligned going back literally to the start of India. And of course it came out of the British empire. So non alignment was part of it was kind of distancing, distancing itself from the West, distancing itself from Britain specifically. And they said, we're not aligned and militarily, they built uh, a very strong during the Cold War. They built a very strong relationship with the Soviet Union, and they would buy their uh, their military equipment from the Soviet Union. So they have a largely Russian-equipped military, but Russian equipment sucks. Period. That's <laughs> not very good. I mean, yeah,
0: you're wasting and, uh, your
1: money. Yeah, pretty much. And and by the way. We've had a demonstration of how bad Russian equipment is in, over the last year and a half in Ukraine. But, uh, but they want to they they westernize their army. They also recognize that the way the world's going, China is this, you know, hegemonic empire. They need someone who's going to bolster their position against China. Obviously, Russia is not going to do that. Russia is not going to be able to help them in any way. They want to become, you know, they, they realize that their economic growth, everything, is tied to the global order, the Western order, if you will. So even though they're technically not aligned, they've been moving closer and closer to the West, and there's a new group, uh it's relatively new. It informally started after Hurricane, or not Hurricane Katrina, but after the uh, um, the uh, Aceh, uh, if you remember the big Indian Ocean tsunami. Um, that after that, there was a a group of countries that started informally working together uh, to do a lot of these uh, things. And one of the things they did was they they called themselves the Quad. It was the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India. And they've been working very closely together. Well, the Quad now has military exercises. They just finished a huge military exercise off Australia a couple of weeks ago. Uh, A lot of you know, interoperability issues, command and control issues, all sorts of stuff working with the Indian Navy. Um, this is, this is really big, and there's a lot of speculation that the Quad could form the nucleus of an Asian NATO. And, mm-hmm. and there's other countries that want to get involved. Uh, South Korea has specifically said it's interested in joining the Quad, and there's other countries, uh, that have said they're interested in joining the Quad.
0: They're going to have to change their name. There.
1: Well, they're going to have to change the name. Yeah. Well, if you go back historically in the '50s, there was a thing called Mm SATO Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, which was supposed to be that was at that time it was the uh, it was essentially set up to be the the Asian NATO for containment of the Soviet Union. Right. And uh, Sato really kind of fell apart with the Vietnam War because Sato was was invoked in order to bring... You know, we we always remember the U.S. was over there, but other countries like South Korea was also in Vietnam. The Australians were in Vietnam. And uh, and the Vietnam War was kind of the thing that functionally broke the back, if you will, of Sato, because of how that war transpired. But interestingly, and then, of course, this last week, if I, I'm sorry I'm going on and on, but this last week, President Biden is getting ready to do a state visit to Vietnam, and he's announcing... A, a very it's a new but very uh broad relationship, mutual yeah, you know, it's kinda of got defense in there. I'm I'm waiting to see what the final product looks like if they announce. But it sounds like we're building a very strong relationship almost on the order of what we just did down in the Philippines uh, with Vietnam. And I am not the first to say, wow <laughs> what what a yeah. difference a few decades make, you know. Um,
0: but, no yeah,
1: you know, the communists are still in charge there. So it's uh, interesting. Yeah.
0: What's going on with North Korea? I understand they, they've they been sent shooting off missiles.
1: Well, uh, the uh, there was just the completion of, and, and I've done this before. We have a series of exercises we do over there. I've been doing exercises, well, not recently because I'm retired, but I've done exercises in, uh, in uh, Korea multiple, many times, if you will. One of them is the Ultifocus uh, uh, series of exercises. We just finished that. It's a bilateral exercise, which means it's just between our two countries. And, of course, we have a very large military footprint uh, that's been there forever uh, in South Korea. Well, part of that exercise, um, and we've been doing this more and more, we flew bombers, strategic bombers, uh, over South Korea, not that far south from the DMZ as a, as a statement, which is telling North Korea, Hey, South Korea is very much under the nuclear umbrella of the United States. And of course, we've also, as you may have seen in the last few months, we announced we are going to send nuclear submarines, nuclear ming bomber boomers, the ones that have nuclear missiles, um, into South Korea into ports, which we had not done, I think. Pretty much since the Cold War. And we just did one of those very high profile thing. Well, North Korea, as they tend to do, and Kim Jong Un, as he tends to do, goes, goes on a, you know, rhetorical rant about this stuff. And so he launched a couple of missiles into the ocean. I variously heard them called kind of like ICBMs, we're not quite sure, but then again, I also saw reports that said they were cruise missiles. Those are two very different types of missiles, by the way, um, but they launched them into the uh, Sea of Japan just to make a, a big statement, and, and then he had this big thing where it shows him in front of a map, and he's got his generals there, and it's to discuss the occupation of South Korea by North Korean troops. All right, that's a <laughs> That's a pretty bold statement. <laughs> okay,
0: well, is he going way, to Putin's university?
1: I, per, per, well, I think Putin's been in his university. If you if, look, I've, I've I've seen South or North Korean rhetoric. You know, some of the propaganda stuff going back for many decades. You know, back to the eighties, and they've always been way over the top on whatever they say. But I, 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 I mean, I look at that. And part of me says, oh, that's very confrontational. And of course, the press usually picks that up and says, oh, you know, this is, you know, heightened tensions, all stuff. But the other part of me, and this, this is more the intelligence, military intelligence side, there, there's no way North Korea is going to get into South Korea and take over because that's one of the problems they have is their equipment is all old. Their ammunition, which the Russians are negotiating hard to get as much ammunition out of North Korea over to Ukraine as possible, their ammunition is still usable. But their equipment, you know, their tanks, their artillery, everything is old, and particularly all their mobile uh, mobile armor stuff, you know, the tanks and armored personnel carriers, infantry fighting vehicles, those are really old, and they're just not going to get very far. And, you know, the time when South, North Korea could have presented a, a a credible, conventional strike capability against South Korea, probably ended somewhere in the mid 90s mid to late 90s that 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 ability of them to actually do something where they could have taken a lot of territory quickly that sort of got eclipsed and one of the reasons why uh, North Korea went into the you know developing a nuclear weapon was because they don't have a credible conventional uh, military force so really all you can do is You know he he built these nuclear weapons we'll get into all the details of how they developed how they got that technology and then to build up this missile force and his whole gambit is that by having a strategic deterrent with nuclear weapons that somehow he can offset the fact that they can't get their tanks to start and go down the road (laughs) and uh so that's kind of that's you know it's it's typical rhetoric but you got to watch him i mean he does they do stupid stuff and uh Oh, by the way, is a complete side note, you know, with the with the uh, massive use of drones on both sides that we see in the Ukraine war mm-hmm. and the massive use of drones everywhere, there's a a new joint drone command that was just stood up. I think yesterday in in South Korea. And it's going to take a while to get up, but this is this thing is it's got all the services in there to include the the. The uh, what, what's called the the Rock Marines, yeah. that's Republic of Korea Marines, who, whom I know and I've worked with and trained with, uh, going back a long time, and uh, they're all going to be working this big joint drone thing because everybody's looking at Ukraine and realizing that this is the war of the future. It's going to be one that's filled with with drones. And as one U- former U.S. Army Special Special Forces officer said, he said, "Look, I've been I've been in wars my entire career." you know, in Iraq, Afghanistan, other places around the world in various different t- types of conflict. And he says, during that time, I never had to look up because the U.S. always owns the skies. You know, we have air superiority, and there really weren't any, you know, bad guy drones. You know, al-Qaeda wasn't really doing anything with drones. And he said, that's all changed. Yeah. He said, warfare of the future is you're going to have to look up all the time.
0: So I read, was it yesterday that or this morning, where Russia is bringing up missiles that allegedly can hit anywhere in the world? Did you see uh, that? The
1: yes, the Satan Two, the new and ver- new and improved version of the Satan. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually our name for it, not their name. I, I
0: was, was going to kick all that. <laughs> so, what's up with that? Why is this just a you know a show like the North Korea likes to put on a show?
1: It, it really it is. Um, you know, I, it, no one really. Appro- not, you know, everything I've said it doesn't. With what they have, it's not an appreciable difference in their strategic capability or strategic strike capability. The missiles they have are kind of old. And this has been going on for years that they needed to um, improve their missile system. This is not what I what, what little I've seen of it. It's not a dramatic improvement. It looks like just it's an improvement on the same basic basic concept, strategic concept, if you will. It's just yeah. a newer missile. It's got a little bit more range on it. Um, it can fire ten independently targeted warheads, which I always question. Russian warhead targeting capabilities—that's always been a been a bit of an issue. You know, we back in the '80s, we would do—I think it was called um, uh, MIRVs, multiple independently targeted reentry vehicles—and they would do MARVs. multiple. Um, I forget what the A stood for, but it was just basically they would shower an area with nuclear weapons. Now, in all fairness, nuclear weapons do kind of adhere to that horseshoe rule. Which is close counts. All right. So, uh, so they, you know, if you, if you get a nuclear weapon within a proximate area, it's so big that it causes, you know, you're going to have massive devastation of that. So you don't have to be quite as exact, say, with other munitions, if you will. With that said, I don't know what they, what they're really going to gain from this at all. It, It was really seen as a propaganda move to offset the fact that they're, they're basically getting pushed back in Ukraine and they didn't have any good news to talk about Ukraine. So they (laughs) basically said, Hey, we, we got this missile. And frankly, I don't know if that missile was any, was, was a new missile, uh, any newer missile on the day of the announcement that it was say a month or two months ago or six months ago, but they just needed something to talk about. So they said, Hey, we got this missile and we can do this stuff. But
0: do they have expiration dates?
1: Well, it's not quite like milk. All right. But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, um, but well, with missiles, um, uh, with any nuclear weapons, uh, there's a constant. And when we have this in the U.S., but any any of those weapons, you know, the, uh, the the nuclear material itself, the warhead material, it does decay over time. That's just the the nature of radioactive substances. So they do have to be constantly replenished, if you will. That's probably not the right term, but they have to go in there and they have to periodically take out those nuclear warhead cores and put new ones in and then you know and that's the same thing so they they don't expire so much but they they don't sit there forever uh during the at the end of the cold war one of the things the russians had was and i think we had we had them too was what we call backpack nukes now, i don't want to be one of the guys that had to do this but uh but they had they had units, and we had units. Where these guys would literally backpack in a small tactical nuclear weapon, and uh, and then they would, you know, covertly insert it behind enemy lines, and it would go. Anyway, <laughs> I always assumed the guys that had that mission were like the fastest runners in their platoon. You know, you gotta be, <laughs> okay, gotta okay. be. Go go. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's like the. Uh, well, the old, that old joke they had, they said, uh, they've developed a nuclear hand grenade. We just can't get any volunteers who want to throw it. Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, big fear was after the cold war was where are all these backpack nukes. And, um, it was interesting that, uh, I don't know, sometime in like the mid to late nineties, basically they're saying, you know, they might be out there somewhere. We're not sure, but here's the deal. The, uh, the uh, the the war the you know the, the actual if right, you warhead the uh, nuclear material itself has decayed so much that basically most of them had at that point become a little more than a dirty bomb. You know, if yeah. you blew them up, you could spread radiation, but it wasn't going to get the uh, the uh, nuclear explosive effect that that they would have had at one t- point. And, and you may have seen certainly after 9/11, you didn't hear a lot about backpack nukes and the reason why is cuz pretty much everybody is assessed by that time unless they had somehow able to plug into a way to to go in there and uh maintain those things if somebody did have them they're they're not very useful so
0: well that's what i was wondering because if they're laying around for months and years on end well it's not going to be as spectacular as, as they imagined
1: no. no, no, but I mean, the Russians, I mean, we have it, we have a very set program. I mean, every once in a while makes the news that, you know, that the, uh, you know, that the Air Force or something, uh, wasn't doing what they were supposed to do with nukes. It gets everybody excited and there's usually, you know, a lot of discussion about we have to do this, we have to do that. And, but generally speaking, uh, all the strategic weapons across the board and, as far as I know, the Russians still do this. I don't know how well they do it right now because their military is in such bad shape. But uh, but they do maintain these weapons on a regular basis to make sure that they are, they have a credible deterrent. And uh, so, as far as I know, their nuclear weapons are ready to go. I, I honestly don't know if a lot of their other stuff is. You know, at the uh, end of the Cold War, you know, we used to joke in the intelligence community that we spent an enormous amount of of, of money and effort. Trying to figure out how many nuclear submarines were in the Murmansk Peninsula. And after a few years after the end of the Cold War, it's like we don't have to work so hard because we know they're just sitting there tied up at the port, rusting. They, they didn't have the uh, funds to take them out to sea, so they just kind of sat there and fell apart. And I don't know, I think one or two of them may have actually sank while tied up. That's funny. Um, and they. <laughs> so. Hopefully they got the missiles off before that, but uh yeah, that was <laughs> <laughs> just that's that's Russian maintenance, which is more of a concept piece. Uh,
0: <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Well, we're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna be back in a couple of minutes. Stay with us. Law Matters is hosting their second annual Nominate Your Favorite Veteran for a Day of Recognition Contest. In 150 words or less, tell us your veteran's story and send it to info at lawmatters1030.org by September 30th. Our winner will be contacted on October 10th. Be an honored guest at the Veterans Parade, receive a gift basket, and be interviewed on the Law Matters radio show. We look forward to hearing your story.
1: Law Matters wants you to know all phone and email scams follow the same basic pattern. A potential victim is contacted, they are given a compelling reason to act, and then they are told to pay money. In every scheme, there is an urgency factor. These scammers are professionals. They are using scripts that work. It is okay to hang up or tell a lie if you have to. Better yet, don't answer the phone if you don't recognize the number. If in doubt, reach out to a friend or a family member.
0: National media continues to exaggerate and promote misleading negative headlines designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. Law Matters gives law enforcement a voice to hear their up-to-date concerns so we can keep our families safe. Remember, the only people who want to defund the police and dismantle these agencies are the criminals. Tune in to Law Matters live shows Saturday morning at 8 or stream on lawmatters1030.org. And remember to thank a cop.
1: Established in 1865, the Pima County Sheriff's Department is one of the largest agencies in the nation that ensures the safety and trust with integrity and respect. With decades of change and development, we have grown by instituting progressive plans of preparedness to work as a vigilant team serving and protecting. With careful selection, every department member is prepared today to protect for tomorrow, serving with principle, professionalism, and purpose. To learn more about wearing the badge for your community, visit PimaSheriff.org and follow our social media for up-to-date events and information. Join us in our commitment to this community and vouch to never become complacent.
0: Law Matters is hosting their second annual Nominate Your Favorite Veteran for a Day of Recognition contest. In 150 words or less, tell us your veteran's story and send it to info at lawmatters1030.org by September 30th. Our winner will be contacted October 10th. Be an honored guest at the Veterans Parade, receive a gift basket, and be interviewed on the Law Matters radio show. We look forward to hearing your story. staying with us our guest today is hal Kemper, the ceo of global risk intelligence planning and i heard that putin airlines was running a special for your holiday travel are you interested
1: (laughs) any unexpected stops
0: (laughs) probably
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know uh, it was interesting uh uh a little thing a black sea issue uh is uh you know, they, Russia, it's very interesting. Russia has declared, quote, a blockade of, uh, Ukrainian ports. All right. And they said they're going to stop, uh, ships and stuff. Now, interestingly, uh, they did stop a ship going, I think it was going up to Ukraine and they did board it. And, and it was pointed out as much as they said, oh, it's the violation of international law. You know, Ukraine said that. And and I think the U.S. kind of chimed in on that. Actually, someone looked at it closely go, Technically, it's very offensive, and uh, it's not polite. But, but technically, it's not a violation of international law what they did if you declare a blockade. However, they also point out that, Ukraine, or that Russia wasn't doing all the things to impose a blockade that you have to do uh, to, to declare a naval blockade, which is kind of interesting. Anyway, that has stopped shipments of grain coming out of the Ukrainian ports going around the world, which is causing huge issues with what's referred to as the global South and, uh, and lots of countries around the world, but specifically in the middle East and, uh, and, and Africa, and, but also in Asia are, have a huge dependence on uh grain coming from Ukraine and Russia, uh, that has to go through the black sea or has always gone to the black sea. And so this whole thing with the black sea is huge. Well, Ukraine, and they, they announced they're doing a couple more ships this morning. They've had a couple of ships go down a new route. and as near as I've, I've been able to figure out, they hug the coast. Uh, uh, they go you know they go out in Ukraine, uh, generally heading you know, more or less towards the uh, southwest. and then they get into uh, Bulgarian, Romanian waters, Turkish waters, but they stay within the territorial waters of those countries. Where they do have the right of free passage under international law. And, and, but also if, uh, the Russian Navy was to involve, you know, engage in some sort of, uh, combatant action, uh, on the water, in those territorial waters, technically they would be going to war on the territory of a NATO country, which Russia really doesn't want to trigger. So it's opened up this, this alternate route where they're able to get Ukrainian ships in. Also, Ukraine has some other ways that they're able to ship grain that they didn't have at the beginning of the war, you know, overland and 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 even over, you know, up the Danube River and uh, a variety of different ways. Long story short, for Putin, that blockade isn't working out too well. And Erdogan is flying up, I think, this next week. Yeah, this next week, I believe, up to Sochi, which is a Black Sea port in Russia. And he's going to meet with Putin, and they're going to talk about reopening this humanitarian corridor to the Black Sea to let these ships out part of it is recognition that they the whatever Russia is doing to block that isn't quite working the other part is to for Russia to try and overcome some of the uh, uh, pushback and heat that they're feeling from the global south kind of undermining everything else they're doing uh, where they're saying look well, you know okay so you got you know these Wagner troops down here that's another story um, but Uh, and you got a lot of military coups being implemented, but what you don't have is you don't have the food coming in to feed the population. And so they're trying to kind of offset that. That's a long way of saying, Erdogan's going to be flying into Sochi. And I was thinking about that, I was like, this is not a really good time to be flying through Russian airspace, you know? Yeah, I don't think I'd want to. (laughs) I don't think I'd want to. So anyway, but of course, if you you know the history of maintenance on, on Russian planes, you really don't want to fly in a Russian airliner period. Okay. Um, they, they, they tend to fall out of the sky without any intent. They just, you
0: know, (laughs) like recently there was one (laughs) that's, that's not, (laughs)
1: well, whether it breaks down or, uh, or, or, you know, or the pilots are drunk, which is not an uncommon thing in Russia. Um, yeah, that, uh, there's a there's a lot of perils uh, uh involved with uh flying russian airlines of any type so well
0: know. i don't plan on doing that anytime soon <laughs> i want to talk about because you and i were talking the other day i want to talk about the second amendment sure tell people okay. you know because you'll hear people i have a right to bear arms and that's the only phrase they know yeah let's uh, talk about the, the whole thing
1: well that's only part of the sentence. that's only it, it, look I'll be the first to say and, and I think most legal scholars will agree the Second Amendment was not the most artfully written uh, amendment uh, but it is actually it's much broader. It, it talks about the right to keep and bear arms, but it's also in the same it's in the same sentence if you will, although although the way it's broken up uh, it kind of looks like almost two sentences crammed into one but it's in the same it's in the same amendment where they talk about you know to to maintain and a uh, you know for the maintenance of an organized militia so to speak all right
0: and they're now, not referring the to, to event, the proud boys right
1: no no but believe me and, and i look i've done i've trained from coast to coast border border around this country on terrorism for many years and uh and I've, I've trained you know, international terrorism, domestic terrorism. We've talked about, you know, neo-Nazi white supremacists, uh, sovereign citizen, constitutionalist, anti-government extremists. And we get very much into the, the philosophy, the mindset of these groups and how they interpret the Constitution. And it isn't the only amendment of the Constitution that they have some very interesting ideas about. Um, but it is one they bring up a lot and they don't have the right to keep and bear arms and they talk about the militia in their minds. You go down and you say, I'm a militia. That's their militia. All right. And the fact that they got together in a bar and said that, uh, they're a militia, that's enough organization as far as they're concerned. Now, I have to be a little cautious on this because, you know, as a Marine, um, our, our entire Marine Corps was set up in a tavern originally in 1775. So there is, I'm not taking any cheap shots at what happens in bars, but, um, um, (laughs) but with that, that's their view. The organized militia uh, was something that States put together and, you know, the 13 colonies um, and, you know, and it goes back to, you know, they came out of the articles of confederation, which was a very loose arrangement where the States had all the power to include all the power of taxation and moved into the Constitution. Well, there was a, a sort of a state-centric focus on that, and so they talked about the state militias. Well, over time, that state militia has become the uh, the National Guard, and the states have National Guards. And if you if you look at, for example, in Hawaii with the Lahaina fire, you have military involvement over there. And and if you actually look at it, I think it's the Assistant Adjutant General is the Joint Task Force commander. And he has both federal and state troops. And what that means is he's got federal troops, which are under what's called Title 10, federal status, just like regular U.S. Army, U.S. Air Force, whatever. He's got those troops there. And he's also got, uh, state troops, which are National Guard troops. Um, they're, they're supposed to be, uh, up to federal training standards, but they're, uh, but they're National Guard troops. That are there. And and I say that because, and I'm not saying the National Guard troops aren't up to federal standards, but there was another thing called state military departments, and they sometimes have this more volunteer thing that I'll talk about in a bit. But, um, and they're not, uh, in any way, they cannot be federalized, but the National Guard troops can, but they'll keep them under different status. And one of the reasons is if they're under state status, there's a law called Posse Comitatus from 1878. Which says that federal troops can't do law enforcement. However, the governor has his militia troops, his his National Guard troops under state active duty. The governor can say they can do law enforcement. Anyway, long story short, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of hitting a lot of different things here. Let me get back to the Second Amendment. It talks about for the maintenance or for a, for an organized militia. All right, the militia they were talking about is today the National Guard, and uh, one of the things with that. And it's a, it's a, I'll be a first to say, it's not a, certainly not a majority opinion out there, but the thought was look at the amendment as a whole. And whereas, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you know, I'm in California. So, you know, our governor is always trying, he's proposing a new amendment to outlaw guns or stuff like that. But, um, if you look at the amendment as a whole, you could say, okay, the the right to keep bear arms is, is tied is is not predicate, but it's actually after. But it's tied to the organized militia piece. Should the organized militia have a role in uh, in, in somehow regulating who has those guns? And and it's, that makes uh, sense it makes to me. Well, and, it, and it, look, it's not it's not going to be you know the, the the big fear is you know that you know that you hear the the unorganized militias out there talk about is that. You know, the jackbooted thugs of the federal government, and I always laugh who they come up with when they talk about that, or, you know, like the, that somehow there's some secret FBI army out there that's going to kick in the doors and stuff and take all their guns. It's what it's saying is they're, they're not going to come in and confiscate weapons. But what it is saying is certainly if you have a weapon and if it was anything they consider, you know, easily they could say anything that could be used for military purposes or has military, you know, has military capability. You know, then they get into assault rifles. You know, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, handguns. You know, they're magazine-fed and things like that. Uh, you could actually tell the militia they have to register that, and then part of that registration process, you know, which could be mandatory and certainly within the, within the Second Amendment, uh, would would be they'd have to do a check on them, make sure they don't have a criminal record. You know, they don't have some mental or psychological issue or, or some other thing that would uh, preclude them from from having a weapon, and then maybe go back to what the NRA used to do way back when, when I was a kid. You know, <laughs> you know when when we go down there and we tie up our horses, you know, next to the local anyway. <laughs> but um, you know, the, they used to do um, uh, what they called hunter safety training. Right. And they'd actually teach you how to safely handle and shoot a weapon. And uh, and that could be a role. Now, I'm going to tell you, first off, I say this two things. Number one, the National Guard has absolutely no interest in doing this. <laughs> and and frankly, if I was a, a general and National Guard Bureau headquarters, I'd go, we want to stay as far away from that mission as we possibly can. All right? But yeah, whenever, I think
0: that horse has already up, left the barn.
1: Yeah, but if you look at the Second Amendment, that definitely fits within the, the the language of the Second Amendment to say, "Hey, this is a job for the state militias; that they have to regulate this," and mm-hmm. and and you know, and and then you can impose the golden rule, which is, "He who has the gold rules," um, and uh, and then you could tie federal funding for the National Guard uh, to how well they enforce that thing. And, and it won't solve all the problems. I'm not going to say you're going to solve all the uh, the uh, you know, gun-related violence out there. But what I would say is it gives law enforcement a huge capability because it would require that all weapons, and I'm sure some will say this is already being done. I, I kind of question that. But um, it would require uh, that all weapons have to be registered, accounted for. So anytime you come up to a, 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 a whether you have a Uh, a traffic stop or you're going to someone's home for you know one of those domestic um, disturbance disturbance calls which are always very dangerous yes um that that they would have uh, another database that they could quickly reference and and within the state they would have you know certainly a body of laws that could be imposed that if you did have one of these weapons and it was found on your property and it wasn't registered uh they could they could impose some pretty draconian consequences for that. And uh so at least on that side would there would be that screening process, mm-hmm. all right? And there would also be that universal registration process. And and frankly, you know, I I mentioned assault rifles and stuff. There's no reason why every firearm would not be inclusive in that. If you read the way the language written, it it doesn't say, you know, High capacity magazines and assault rifles in the Second Amendment. There's no way no yeah, exactly. to that. <laughs> it just says firearms. So, technically, even if you had a, a say, a historic, um, you know, flintlock cannon. weapon, which yeah. would, that would be a uh, cannon. Well, that actually, yeah. Uh, by the way, there are uh, certain extreme uh, homegrown militia groups who look at the Second Amendment and say that that gives us the right to have artillery the right to have nuclear weapons. Um, there's some pretty extreme interpretations of that Second Amendment. Um, what this would do is it would provide a way to register, screen, and then if people out there had these weapons um, and and they were caught having these weapons and it wasn't in that database, it would provide a tool for, for the judicial system to take action against them um, as a huge disincentive for hiding weapons. and. You know it doesn't take the weapons away you know law-abiding citizens who want to use them for protection or whatever would still have their weapons uh if anything some of them and there's a lot of people out there who have weapons who frankly don't know how to shoot and and i say this as somebody who occasionally goes down to you know refresh my marksmanship skills at a local range there are some people out there who really don't know how to shoot okay and um you know i don't think a little instruction would hurt them at all you know frankly just for safety at the range, if no place else, but, uh, you know, to teach them how to handle a weapon and, you know, in a safe manner and stuff, and, and maybe reduce the number of accidental, um, gun, gun incidents every year as well. If you, you know, part of that could be telling them how they're supposed to safeguard their weapons in a home, particularly a home with children or those who might, you know, and, and of course, a bigger issue, one of the big issues now, not just children, um, you know, with uh, with pe- you know, people with dementia and stuff like that, you just got to be careful uh, yeah. because uh, they Absolutely. get their hands on these weapons. They just don't know. They don't know. And every year, every year there's some of those incidents where someone with dementia or mental issues or something gets their hands on a weapon and they just don't have the mental capacity to know not to pull the trigger, you know.
0: Exactly. And, uh, you know. Wouldn't organizations like the Proud Boys, are they considered terrorist groups?
1: i don't think they're i don't know that they're registered as a terrorist group that's
0: would they uh, have to uh, self-register I, or would somebody register them for them <laughs>
1: well i, I guess I, you know this is an issue uh, are they are they generally considered a domestic terrorist organization i'm sure some would argue yeah they are the problem we have is under the law we don't necessarily we we don't have an ability to International terrorist organizations. We have a whole system in place to do that. So, Hezbollah, ISIS, Al Qaeda, those organizations. Yeah, we can. We can. You know, that's a. That's a. Usually, it's a State Department decision that they are a uh, uh, an international terrorist organization, okay. and so we'll make that decision. Domestic groups. We don't have a body of laws allows us to, to look at a domestic group and say they're. You know, necessarily a terrorist organization of equivalent stuff. We have a lot of things we can do where we will, will tell those organizations and there's some civil things they can certainly do with that. But to my knowledge, I don't know if we have a system in place where we can call them. I mean, we do call them. I mean, I've heard that in law enforcement, press conferences and stuff, they will call them domestic terrorist organizations and things like that. I don't know if legally, certainly under federal law that we have a, an ability to do that. Some of the States, uh, I can't, Say necessarily what they, I, you know. There's there's 50 states and 54 states and territories, and I can't speak to all the laws across the land. If anybody's listening in, and, <laughs> and they want to chime in on that and say yes, absolutely, you know, American Samoa has a law that says it's like okay, great. You know, I'm always finding out stuff like that, <laughs> like Guam. Um, um, you know, I've done a lot of what we call defense support of civil authorities you know, disaster preparedness exercises around the world. Many years ago, I was in the middle of an exercise. We had a bunch of military and, and civil authorities there. And um, and we were talking about posse Comitatus. and the uh, judge advocate for the command there, uh, who's the uh, senior attorney for the command for the admiral, walks in and he goes, hey, all that stuff I've been telling you for the last couple of years about uh, posse Comitatus," And everyone's like, yeah. Yeah, just ignore it apparently we have an exception. <laughs> <laughs> Guam. Like, Really? Just, and of course, Posse Coatadas is a law that says you can't use federal troops for law enforcement. When Guam was brought into the U S territory, there's a thing called the organic act, which is essentially like a treaty. And, uh, the treaty says that the governor can't request the senior military commander on Guam to have troops, uh, do law enforcement missions. Um, and that's because Guam is way the heck out there, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so none of the other stuff would really apply because Guam is so, and you got to remember, way back when, so geographically distant that that really it's kind of on its own. If something happens there, they're going to have to use whatever resources they have on the island to deal with it until so help arrives from somewhere far, far away. So they actually had an exception to that, and so I'm am always finding out that that states and territories have laws that I just wasn't fully cognizant of.
0: Everybody's so that, that doing their around. own thing.
1: To some extent, yeah, yeah.
0: So, do you think that guns should be regulated on a, a national level, or should states continue to do their what they do? Because it seems like well, different but, states have different rules. I'm not
1: gonna. I'm not gonna. You know, I don't know. I, I will say this. All right, there was an assault weapons ban that was in, in effect for many, many years, and and legally it was allowed to. Uh, to exist, and I, I didn't, the Supreme Court never overturned it. Congress just let it lapse. So certainly, the ability to federally regulate weapons is there. And certainly, if you if you use the National Guard for a mission that they absolutely don't want to do, yeah,
0: <laughs> but they should do I, because I can say the, pol-
1: the politics. But it's but it would make sense if they were to use the National Guard for that. Um, I think there were some things, some conditional things they could put into that to regulate it, and there are laws. You know, you can't have a machine gun, for example. There are some very strict laws against certain types of weapons that people can't have. And and it's sometimes forgotten. It's like it's not an open-ended thing. There are certain weapons. You can't have an automatic weapon. That's against the law. And, uh, and that came out, you know, literally out of the gangster era of the 1920s and 30s, where people were allowed to own their own Thompson submachine gun. Right. That's bad. So uh, so what's yeah, the difference a between
0: of, a, a machine gun and an AR15?
1: Well, an AR15, unless you put an automatic sear in it, is not a fully automatic weapon, but an AR15 could fire such a volume of, of rounds and can carry a magazine large enough and some of the mag- some of the expanded magazines they can carry some, a lot of rounds that they can cause horrendous damage and it gets into the rate of fire and and how many people they can, they can, uh, it's just very morbid, but it's how many people they can target or shoot before they have to reload. And, and that's why when these AR 15 things happen, you, you, you tend to see a very high mortality count, you know, yeah. and, and numbers of injured, but simply because of the volume of fire that they're able to put out. Those are the ones that everybody focuses on. They look at the high-capacity magazines, which I don't know the regulating that's going to really do much uh, because certain states, allow you to have high-capacity magazines. Other states don't. So, you know, like in California, wherever they've had all these laws, and everybody just goes to Las Vegas, which is easy because they go to Las Vegas anyway. Uh, but they can buy all the weapons that are banned in California and all the magazines that are banned in California. And, and certainly if you're a crook, you know, you're a criminal, yeah. they come as a shock, but not all criminals are really good at abiding by the laws okay so they don't really care or
0: something but are they good shots no no
1: but they make up for it in they
0: and, yeah uh, they don't have to be with some of those weapons
1: no actually it was kind of interesting uh, back in the 90s this was a thing up in phoenix there were some gangs up there that were doing drive by shootings yeah. something they had seen the gangs doing in los angeles and initially the drive by shootings a lot of a lot of rounds were fired but they didn't hit anything they're uh they were they were all over the place, and uh, the the police would kind of laugh. You know, I mean it's horrible, but they laugh. It was like, gosh, these guys are horrible. Anyway, I was out in the desert shooting with some friends. You know, we're out in the you know it's an area that we could do that, and we're shooting at targets. And all of a sudden, we came under fire. Oh my God, they're shooting back. <laughs> and we, and we well, it was like those targets are really angry. So anyway, we we hit the deck and laid low, and um, and it was some car driving by. Oh my God! Um, and and what we later put together was that was the gangs that were driving around the desert practicing their drive-by shooting skills. <laughs> um, in this case, in this case, we just happen to be you know opportunistic live targets for them to practice on. But um, uh, but yeah, these you know so bad yeah, idea. But generally speaking, yeah, generally speaking, their marksmanship isn't very good. But if you're close enough, it doesn't matter. You know that's the way gangs operate.
0: You know. Okay, we only have 15 seconds left, so I want to thank you for coming on the show and talking to us about world affairs and explaining the Second Amendment. And until next week, I want everybody to shop local and stay safe. Mm-hmm. Law Matters is hosting their second annual Nominate Your Favorite Veteran for a Day of Recognition Contest. In 150 words or less, tell us your veteran's story and send it to info at lawmatters1030.org by September 30th. Our winner will be contacted October 10th. Be an honored guest at the Veterans Parade, receive a gift basket, and be interviewed on the Law Matters radio show. We look forward to hearing your story. <music> lawmatters1030.org is a nonprofit that needs your support in Tour de Tucson, either by riding a bike or walking in the 5K. To support us while we support law enforcement, please go to lawmatters1030.org support page to sign up. We'll see you there.